You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome back to the Thunder Quack Podcast for this special edition continuation that I like to call Amanda makes use of her theater degree and finds ways to otherwise occupy herself. I think that's what I called the first uh, part of this special uh, foray into the reading of Frankenstein. Um, if it's not, that's what this now, the second part is called. So, uh, I am your host, Amanda Konkin, and welcome back to the continuation of the, uh, novel Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, by Mary Shelley. Uh, so if you joined for the first, uh, bit of this, I, uh, went through the preface and, uh, the first few letters that open the novel and then talked a little bit about them. And then in this particular, uh, part of the the special series, I will go through the first and second chapters of the first part. Uh, so there's three parts to uh, Frankenstein, um, not including that preface in the letters. So um, this is the first two chapters of part one. And uh, some interesting discoveries. So as you go through, uh, again, bear with me. I apologize if there's a little bit of mispronunciation. I try to do my best uh, as I cold read through this, uh, my first time reading through Frankenstein. So I am discovering it along with anybody who is listening. And uh, after each chapter, I'm going into a little bit of a discussion as to what my immediate thoughts were or if there was any additional information or some clarifications that I might want to come through. And uh, in this, I will say, uh, because I have just finished recording the first two chapters uh, and my reflections on them, some really interesting and profound things are coming out of this. Uh, Science fiction is one of my favorite genres for very important reasons. It reflects upon uh, your current life. It reflects society around you in ways that are sort of interesting, unique, and and somewhat displaced so that you can look at them critically. I think I've talked about that many times on the podcast before. And there were some really interesting revelations about the current state of the world that I actually found uh, in in going through this novel that were unexpected and, and pleasant. And I was surprised at first, but then upon thinking it a little bit further, I I went, of course that happened. That is why I love this kind of literature. It it takes all time and place and circumstance and 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 can in and finds a way to relate to your own uh, personal experiences or to to the state of the world or to find ways that you can reflect upon uh, what is happening in the book and and what might have been or what what uh, is in in your own life. So, kind of interesting. Uh, and again, a uh, um. I'm quite enjoying this, so I hope uh, if you if you carry on, if you continue to listen, that you will enjoy it with me as we go through and explore uh, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus by Mary Shelley. Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, Chapter One. I am by birth a Genevaese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My ancestors had been for many years counselors and syndics, and my father had filled several public situations with honor and reputation. He was respected by all who knew him for his integrity and indefatigable attention to public business. He passed his younger days perpetually occupied by the affairs of his country, 
And it was not until the decline of life that he thought of marrying and bestowing on the state sons who might carry his virtues and his name down to posterity. As the circumstances of his marriage illustrate his character, I cannot refrain from relating them. One of his most intimate friends was a merchant who, from a flourishing state, fell, through numerous misenchances, into poverty. This man, whose name was Beaufort, was of a proud and unbending disposition, and could not bear to live in poverty and oblivion in the same country where he had formerly been distinguished for his rank and magnificence. Having paid his debts, therefore, in the most honorable manner, he retreated with his daughter to the town of Lucerne, where he lived unknown and in wretchedness. My father loved Beaufort with the truest friendship, and was deeply grieved by, by his retreat in these unfortunate circumstances. He grieved also for the loss of his society, and resolved to seek him out, and endeavored to persuade him to begin the world again through the, his credit and assistance. Beaufort had taken effectual measures to conceal himself, and it was ten months before my father discovered his abode. Overjoyed at this discovery, he hastened to the house, which was situated in a mean street near the Rousse. But when he entered, misery and despair alone welcomed him. Beaufort had saved but a very small sum of money from the wreck of his fortunes, but it was sufficient to provide him with a sustenance for some months, and in the meantime he hoped to procure some respectable employment in a merchant's house. The interval was consequently spent in inaction. His grief only became more deep and rankling, when he had leisure for reflection, and at length it took so fast hold of his mind that at the end of three months he lay on a bed of sickness incapable of any exertion. His daughter attended him with the greatest tenderness, but she saw with despair that their little fund was rapidly decreasing and that there was no other prospect for support. But Caroline Beaufort possessed a mind of an uncommon mold, and her courage rose to support her in her adversity. She procured plain work, she plaited straw, and by various means contrived to earn a pittance scarcely sufficient to support life. Several months passed in this manner. Her father grew worse. Her time was more entirely occupied in attending him. Her means of subsistence decreased, and in the tenth month her father died in her arms, leaving her an orphan and a beggar. This last blow overcame her, and she knelt by Beaufort's coffin, weeping bitterly, when my father entered the chamber. He came like a protecting spirit to the poor girl, who committed herself to his care, and after the interment of his friend, he conducted her to Geneva, and placed her under the protection of a relation. Two years after this event, Caroline became his wife. When my father became a husband and a parent, he found his time so occupied by the duties of his new situation, that he relinquished many of his public employments, and devoted himself to the education of his children. Of these, I was the eldest, and the destined successor to all his labors and utility. No creature could have more tender parents than mine. My improvement and health were their constant care, especially as I remained for several years their only child. But before I continued my narrative, I must record an incident which took place when I was four years of age. My father had a sister, whom he tenderly loved and who had married early in life an Italian gentleman. Soon after her marriage, she had accompanied her husband into his native country, and for some years my father had very little communication with her. About the time I mentioned, she died, and a few months afterwards he received a letter from her husband, 
acquainting him with his intention of marrying an Italian lady and requesting my father to take charge of the infant Elizabeth, the only child of his deceased sister. It is my wish, he said, that you should consider her as your own daughter and educate her thus. Her mother's fortune is secured to her, the documents of which I will commit to your keeping. Reflect upon this proposition and decide whether you would prefer educating your niece yourself or to her being brought up by my, a stepmother. My father did not hesitate and immediately went to Italy that he might accompany the little Elizabeth to her future home. I have often heard my mother say that she was at that time the most beautiful child she had ever seen and showed signs even then of a gentle and affectionate disposition. These indications and a desire to bind as closely as possible the ties of domestic love determined my mother to consider Elizabeth as my future wife, a design which she never found reason to repent. From this time, Elizabeth Lavenza became my playfellow, and as we grew older, my friend. She was docile and good-tempered, yet gay and playful as a summer insect. Although she was lively and animated, her feelings were strong and deep, and her disposition uncommonly affectionate. No one could better enjoy liberty, yet no one could submit with more grace than she did to constraint and caprice. Her imagination was luxuriant, yet her cap capability of application was great. Her person was the image of her mind. Her hazel eyes, although as lively as a bird's, possessed an attractive softness. Her figure was light and airy, and, and though capable of enduring great fatigue, she appeared the most fragile creature in the world. While I admired her understanding and fancy, I loved to tend to her, as I should on a favorite animal, and I never saw so much grace both of person and mind united to so little pretension. Everyone adored Elizabeth. If the servants had any request to make, it was always through her in intercession. We were strangers to any species of disunion or dispute, for although there was great dissim dissimilitude in our characters, there was a harmony in that very dissimilitude. I was more calm and philosophical than my companion, yet my temper was not so yielding. My application was of longer endurance, but it was not so severe whilst it endured. I delighted in investigating the facts related to the actual world. She busied herself in following the aerial creations of the poets. The world was to me a secret which I desired to discover. To her, it was a vacancy which she sought to people with imaginations of her own. My brothers were considerably younger than myself. But I had a friend in one of my schoolfellows who compensated for this deficiency. Henry Clerval was the son of a merchant of Geneva, an intimate friend of my father's. He was a boy of singular talent and fancy. I remember, when he was nine years old, he wrote a fairy tale which was the delight and amazement of all his companions. His favorite study consisted in books of chivalry and romance, and when very young, I can remember that we used to act plays composed by him out of these favorite books, the principal characters of which were Orlando, Robin Hood, Amadeus, and St. George. No youth could have passed more happily than mine. My parents were indulgent and my companions amiable. Our studies were never forced, and by some means we always had an end placed in view, which excited us to ardor in the persecution of them. It was by this method, and not by emulation, that we were urged to application. Elizabeth was not incited to apply herself to drawing, that her companions might not outstrip her, but through the desire of pleasing her aunt, and by the re representation of some favorite scene done by her own hand. We learned Latin and English that we might read the writings in those languages, and so far from study being made odious to us through punishment, 
We loved application, and our amusements would have been the labors of other children. Perhaps we did not read so many books or learn languages so quickly as those who are disciplined according to the ordinary methods, but what we learned was impressed to the more deeply on our memories. In this description of our domestic circle, I include Henry Clerval, for he was consistently with us. He went to school with me and generally passed the afternoon at our house. For being an only child and destitute of companions at home, his father was well pleased that he should find associates at our house, and we were never completely happy when Clerval was absent. I feel pleasure in dwelling on the recollections of childhood before misfortune had tainted my mind and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon itself. But in drawing the picture of my early days, I must not omit to record those events which led, by insensible steps, to my aftertale of misery. For when I would account to myself for the birth of that passion, which afterwards ruled my destiny, I find it arise, like a mountain river, from ignoble and almost forgotten sources. But swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I desire, therefore, in this narration, to state those facts which led to my predilection for that science. When I was 13 years of age, we all went to a party of pleasure to the baths near Thonon. The inclemency of weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In his house, I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. I opened it with apathy. The theory which he attempts to demonstrate and the wonderful facts which he relates soon changed this feeling into enthusiasm. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind, and bounding with joy, I communicated my discovery to my father. I cannot help remarking here that many opportunities instructors possess of directing the attention of their pupils to useful knowledge, which they utterly neglect. My father looked carelessly at the title page of my book and said, Ah, Cornelius Agrippa, my dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. If instead of this remark, my father had taken the pains to explain to me that the principles of Agrippa had been entirely exploded, and that a modern system of science had been introduced, which possessed much greater powers than the ancient, because the powers of the latter were chimerical, while those of the former were real and practical, under such circumstances, I should certainly have thrown Agrippa aside, and with my imagination, warmed as it was, should probably have applied myself to a more rational theory of chemistry, which has resulted from modern discoveries." It is even possible that the train of my ideas would never have received the fatal impulse that led to my ruin. But the cursory glance my father had taken of the volume by no means assured me that he was acquainted with its contents, and I continued to read with the greatest avidity. When I returned home, my first care was to procure the whole works of this author, and afterwards of Periclesius and Albert Magnus. I read and studied the wild fancies of these writers with delight. They appeared to me treasures known to few besides myself, and although I often wished to communicate these secret stories of knowledge to my father, yet his indefinite censure of my favorite Agrippa always withheld me. I disclosed my discoveries to Elizabeth, therefore, under a promise of strict secrecy, but she did not interest herself in the subject, and I was left by her to pursue my studies alone. It may appear very strange that a discipline of Albus Magnus should arise in the 18th century, but our family was not scientifical, and I had not attended many of the lectures given at the schools of Geneva. My dreams were therefore undisturbed by reality, and I entered with the greatest diligence into the search of the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. But the latter obtained my most undivided attention. 
Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? Nor were these my only visions. The raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded by my favorite authors, the fulfillment of which I most eagerly sought. And if my incantations were always always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. The natural phenomena that take place every day before our eyes did not escape my examinations. Distillation and the wonderful effects of steam, processes of which my favorite authors were utterly ignorant, excited my astonishment. But my utmost wonder was engaged by some experiments on an air pump, which I saw employed by a gentleman whom we were in the habit of visiting. The ignorance of the early philosophers on these and several other points served to decrease their credit with me, but I could not entirely throw them aside before some other system should occupy their place in my mind. When I was about 15 years old, we had retired to our house near Bellarive, when we witnessed a most violent and terrible thunderstorm. It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura, and the thunderburst at once was frightfully loud from various quarters of the heavens. I remained while the storm lasted, watching its progress with curiosity and delight. As I stood at the door, on a sudden I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak, which stood about twenty yards from our house. And so soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared, and nothing remained but a blasted stump. When we visited the next morning, we found the tree shattered in a singular manner. It was not splinted by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed. The catastrophe of this tree excited my extreme astonishment, and I eagerly inquired of my father the nature and origin of thunder and lightning. He replied, electricity, describing at the same time the various effects of that power. He constructed a small electrical machine and exhibited a few experiments. He made also a kite with a wire and string, which drew down that fluid from the clouds. This last stroke completed the overthrow of Cornelius Agrippa, Albert Magnus, and Pericles, who had so long reigned the lords of my imagination. But by some fatality, I did not feel inclined to commence the study of any modern system, and this disinclination was influenced by the following circumstance. My father expressed a wish that I should attend a course of lectures upon natural philosophy, to which I cheerfully consented. Some accident prevented my attending those lectures until the course was nearly finished. The lecture, being therefore one of the last, was entirely incomprehensible to me. The professor discoursed with the greatest fluency of potassium and boron, of sulfates and oxides, terms to which I could affix no idea, and I became disgusted with the science of natural philosophy, although I still read Pliny and Buffon with delight, authors, in my estimation, of nearly equal interest and utility. My occupations at this age were principally the mathematics and most of the branches of study appertaining to the science. I was busily employed in learning languages. Latin was already familiar to me, and I began to read some of the easiest Greek authors without the help of a lexicon. I also perfectly understood English and German. This is the list of my accomplishments at the age of 17 and you may conceive that my hours were fully employed in acquiring and maintaining a knowledge of this various literature. Another task also devoted upon me when I became an instructor. Another task also devolved upon me when I became the instructor of my brothers. Ernest was six years younger than myself and was my principal pupil. He had been afflicted with ill health from his infancy, through which Elizabeth and I had been his constant nurses. 
His disposition was gentle, but he was incapable of any severe application. William, the youngest of our family, was yet an infant and the most beautiful little fellow in the world. His lively blue eyes, dimpled cheeks, and endearing manners inspired the tenderest affection. Such was our domestic circle, from which care and pain seemed forever banished. My father directed our studies, and my mother partook of our enjoyments. Neither of us possessed the slightest preeminence over the other. The voice of command was never heard amongst us, but mutual affection engaged us all to comply with and obey the slightest desire of each other. Okay, that is chapter one for part one of Frankenstein. Uh, there are three parts to the novel, which I may have said earlier, but uh, I'm going to go through hopefully this section. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about chapter one and my initial thoughts. And then I, I think we will include chapter two as part of this as well. But I kind of want to break them up because there's things that I wasn't able to Basically, there's footnotes in the version that I'm uh, reading from right now, and it's uh, kind of nice. I don't really want to break up the novel by talking about the footnotes, but I kind of want to talk about some of the things in chapter one that were sort of interesting. And then afterwards, I um, looked up and was like, what did what did they actually mean here? Like, what was that footnote? Um, and I think the, um, the most important thing being that natural philosophy is the word for science in the early 1800s. Um, so, so it's kind of really interesting. And, and this is... Well, first, actually, two observations. Uh, first about, like, narrative style, but um, I think it's really interesting. I'd sort of said in the preface that you, like, you don't know who this person is. Like, they haven't been introduced. And even in this first chapter where um, Victor is talking, you only find out his name because his dad addresses him. So he hasn't introduced himself to us. We uh, don't know his last name. We really do just know this first name and we know it because in the way that he's been talking, his father had addressed him uh, while he was while he was talking, which I just I think is just really interesting, like the pieces of information that you're getting and how you're getting in the way that this narrative style is, um, is laid out for us. Um, and the really interesting thing and again, from the from the preface, talking about we know what's going to happen. And I really wonder if people reading it at the time, they really don't know what's going to happen. Like, what is it that's going to that's going to come up? Because he, he consistently refers to and and talks about his own misery and how he how he's brought down. And he's laying this groundwork for us of of where of where this came from and his his predilection for science. And that had he been steered differently as a child, it may not have turned out that way. I kind of like this, this anticipation of what it is, uh, like what's coming. What is it that he did? What what is it that's changed his fate? And how did we it just sort of is this is this like weird um, anticipatory, um, suspense. And it's, and it's so beautifully done because it is through this introspection of this main character who I am, um, I'm quite enjoying. Like, I like this, this idea of, of getting to know Franken, uh, getting to know Victor and getting to know, uh, his, his history and his parents and his, and his background. And I'm curious how that'll come into play because again, it's not something that I'm, uh, intimately familiar with in, in the, in the course of the, uh, of the works. Now, I do have to say, apologies that I did not necessarily pronounce the names and some of the terms as well as I probably should have. Um, but I do think it's kind of interesting. Uh, and I will, I will just go back and talk about a little bit here. There was a footnote about the, I think I pronounced it par Paraclesius or Pericles, but it's Paraclesius. So P-A-R-A-C-E-L-S-U-S -S was the um, person that, that uh, Victor was referring to. And so it says here that uh, the person's name was actually Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohenheim. I, I'm not sure, but it's fantastic. 
What a fantastic name. Um, so it was a Swiss physician, alchemist, and mystic. Uh, so I'm going to definitely Google that person. That's pretty cool. And then um, Albert Magnus was a German Dominican monk, philosopher, and teacher of Thomas Aquinas. So I've heard of Thomas Aquinas before, um, but it was, I don't think I'd heard of Albert Albertus Magnus before. Um, but but anyways, the, the footnote here does say both authors were um, favorites of the young Percy Shelley. So that's just an interesting um, a reference as to why they might have been included or, or the background of, of how Mary Shelley is in, including stuff in here. And anyways, it's just just interesting and, and some background on those uh, those folks that, that exist here. Um, and then, so Agrippa, who I I don't know if that's how you pronounce the name, but that's how I have decided to pronounce it. Here um, was uh, Henricus Cornelius Agrippa of Nitishim, uh, I guess. Anyways, uh, he was the author of De Occulta Philosophia and De Vanitia Scientarium. So interesting. That makes me very, that like just the names of those themselves. And then um, Godwin, so C.F. Godwin, uh, the book was a St. Leon I'm not sure what that is, but, um, yeah. So just, just sort of interviews, like are seeing these books and the, and the people and, and, and who they're looking through. Um, and then I don't know if there's any other, uh, footnotes I really think would be important to talk about in here. Um, but I do thank the, uh, the authors of this particular version for being so insightful and, and, uh, and forthcoming with, uh, references and insight as we move forward. Um, Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm going to, I think that's all for my reflections on chapter one. Uh, thanks for, for bearing with me through, through that as I, as I get back into it. Um, very, very, uh, interested to see what is next for young Victor. Frankenstein part one, chapter two. When I had attained the age of 17, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the university of Ingolstadt. I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought it necessary for the completion of my education that I should be made acquainted with other customs than those of my native country. My de departure was therefore fixed at an early date, but before the day resolved upon could arrive, the first misfortune of my life occurred, an omen, as it were, of my future misery. Elizabeth had caught the scarlet fever, but her illness was not severe, and she quickly recovered. During her confinement, many arguments had been urged to persuade my mother to refrain from attending upon her. She had, at first, yielded to our entreaties, but when she heard that her favorite was recovering, she could no longer debar herself from her society and entered her chamber long before the danger of infection was passed. The consequences of this imprudence were fatal. On the third day, my mother sickened. Her fever was very malignant, and the looks of her attendants prognosticated the worst event. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity of this admirable woman did not desert her. She joined the hands of Elizabeth and myself. My children, she said, my firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union. This expectation will now be the consolation of your father. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to your younger cousins. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you, and happy and beloved as I have been, is it not hard to quit you all? But these are not thoughts befitting me. I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death and will indulge a hope of meeting you in another world. She died calmly, and her countenance expressed affection even in death. I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent by that most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul and the despair that is exhibited on the countenance. 
It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she, whom we saw every day, and whose very existence appeared a part of our own, can have departed forever, that the brightness of a beloved eye can be extinguished, and the sound of a voice so familiar and dear to the ear can be hushed, never more to be heard. These are the reflections of the first days. But when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil, then the actual bitterness of grief commences. Yet from whom has not that rude hand rent away some dear connection? And why should I describe a sorrow which all have felt and must feel? The time at length arrives, when grief is rather an indulgence than a necessity, and the smile that plays upon the lips, although it may be deemed a sacrilege, is not banished. My mother was dead, but we had still duties which we ought to perform. We must continue our course with the rest, and learn to think ourselves fortunate, whilst one remains whom the spoiler has not seized. My journey to Ingleslat, which had been deferred by these events, was now again determined upon. I obtained from my father the respite of some weeks. This period was sent sadly. This period was spent sadly. My mother's death and my speedy departure depressed our spirits. But Elizabeth endeavored to renew the spirit of cheerfulness in our little society. Since the death of her aunt, her mind had acquired new firmness and vigor. She determined to fulfill her duties with the greatest exactness, and she felt that the most imperious duty of rendering her uncle and cousins happy had devolved upon her. She consoled me, amused her uncle, instructed my brothers, and I never beheld her so enchanting as at this time, when she was continually endeavoring to contribute to the happiness of others, entirely forgetful of herself. The day of my departure at length arrived. I had taken leave of all my friends, excepting Clerval, who spent the last evening with us. He bitterly lamented that he was unable to accompany me, but his father could not be persuaded to part with him, intending that he should become a partner with him in business, in compliance with his favorite theory, that learning was superfluous to the co in, the commence in the commerce of ordinary life. Henry had a refined mind. He had no desire to be idle, and was well pleased to become his father's partner, but he believed that a man might be a very good trader, and yet possess a cultivated understanding. We sat late listening to his complaints and making many little arrangements for the future. The next morning, early, I departed. Tears gushed from the eyes of Elizabeth. They proceeded partly from sorrow at my departure, and partly because she reflected that the same journey was to have taken place three months before, when a mother's blessing would have accompanied me. I threw myself into the chaise that was to convey me away, and indulged in the most melancholy reflections. I, who had ever been surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavoring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone. In the university, whither I was going, I must form my own friends and be my own protector. My life had hitherto been remarkably secluded and domestic, and this has given me invincible repugnance to new continences. I loved my brothers, Elizabeth and Clerval. Those were old, familiar faces but I believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. Such were my reflections as I commenced my journey, but as I proceeded, my spirits and hopes rose. I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge. I had often, when at home, thought it hard to remain during my youth cooped up in one place, and had longed to enter the world and take my station among other human beings. Now my desires were complied with, and it would indeed have been folly to repent." I had sufficient leisure for these and many other reflections during my journey to Ingleslad, which was long and fatiguing. At length, the high white steeple of the town met my eyes. I alighted, I alighted and was conducted to my solitary apartment to spend the evening as I pleased. 
The next morning, I delivered my letters of introduction and paid a visit to some of the principal professors, and among others, to M. Kremt, professor of natural philosophy. He received me with politeness and asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I mentioned, it is true, with fear and trembling, the only authors I had ever read upon those subjects. The professor stared. Have you, he said, really spent your time in studying such nonsense? I replied in the affirmative. Every minute, continued M. Kremth with warmth, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what deserted land have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Pericles. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. So saying, he swept me aside and wrote down a list of several books treating of natural philosophy, which he desired me to procure and dismiss me after mentioning that in the beginning of the following week, he intended to commence a course of lectures upon natural philosophy in its general relations, and that M. Waldman, a fellow professor, would lecture upon chemistry the alternate days that he missed. I returned home, not disappointed, for I had long considered those authors useless whom the professor had so strongly rehabilitated reprobated, but I did not feel much inclined to study the books which I procured at his recommendation. M. Kremt was a little squat man with a gruff voice and repulsive countenance. The teacher, therefore, did not prepossess me in favor of his doctrine. Besides, I had a contempt for the uses of modern natural philosophy. It was very different when the masters of the science sought immortality and power. Such views, although futile, were grand, but now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. Such were my reflections during the first two or three days spent um, almost in solitude. But as the ensuing week commenced, I thought of the information which M. Kremt had given me concerning the lectures. And although I could not consent to go and hear that little conceited fellow deliver sentences out of the pulpit, I recollected what he had said of M. Waldman, whom I had never seen, as he had hitherto been out of town. Partly from curiosity and partly from idleness, I went into the lecturing room, which M. Waldman entered shortly after. This professor was very unlike his colleague. He appeared about fifty years of age, but with an aspect expressive of the greatest benevolence. A few gray hairs covered his temples, but those at the back of his head were nearly black. His person was short, but remarkably erect, and his voice the sweetest I had ever heard. He began his lecture by a recapitulation of the history of chemistry and the various improvements made by different men of learning, pronouncing with fervor the names of the most distinguished discoveries. He then took a cursory view of the present state of the science and explained many of its elementary terms. After having made a few preparatory experiments, he concluded with a pangeneric upon modern chemistry, the terms of which I shall never forget. The ancient teachers of this science, he said, promised impossibilities and performed nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and that the elixir of life is a chimera. But these philosophers, whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt, and their eyes to pore over the microscope or crucible, have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and shew how she works in her hiding places. 
They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. I departed highly pleased with the professor and his lecture and paid him a visit the same evening. His manners in private were much his manners in private were even more mild and attractive than in public, for there was a certain dignity in his mien during his lecture, which in his own house was replaced by the greatest affability and kindness. He heard with attention my little narration concerning my studies and smiled at the names of Cornelius Agrippa and Paraclesius, but without the contempt that M. Kremt had exhibited. He said that these were men whose indefatigable zeal modern philosophers were indebted for most of the foundations of their knowledge. They had left to us as an easier task to give new names and arrange in connected classifications the facts which they, in a great degree, had been instruments of bringing to light. The labors of men of genius, however erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind. I listened to his statement, which was delivered without any presumption or affection, without any presumption or affectation, and then added that his lectures had removed my prejudices against modern chemists, and I, at the same time, requested his advice concerning the books I ought to procure. I am happy, said M. Waldman, to have gained a disciple, and if your application equals your ability, I have no doubt of your success. Chemistry is a branch of natural philosophy in which the greatest improvements have been and may be made. It is on that account that I have made it my peculiar study. But at the same time, I have not neglected the other branches of science. A man would make but a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If your wish is to become really a man of science and not merely a petty experimentalist, I should advise you to apply to every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics. He then took me into his laboratory and explained to me the uses of his various machines, instructing me as to what I ought to procure and promising me the use of his own when I should have advanced far enough in the science not to derange their mechanism. He also gave me the list of books which I had requested, and I took my leave. Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. What a second chapter. Holy. Okay, so that's the end of chapter two of Frankenstein. And I have, I have some thoughts. Um, some, are, some are fun and some are a little bit um, somber. So having taken this undertaking, as it were, um, in the month of March 2020, when a uh, contagious disease happens to be at the forefront of all thoughts as I sit here in my house, uh, finding things to uh, occupy myself, I must say that reading that opening chapter uh, and uh, the, the death of Victor's mother coming from scarlet fever, uh, um, quite contagious and, and deadly disease, is just, I, I almost stopped sort of as I was reading, I almost wanted to sort of stop and remark upon it and be like, are you guys here with me? Are you listening to this? Can you, this, but it's just the beginning of the 18th century and they were dealing with similar things and similar prospects and people just wanting to be around each other and not taking their own health into consideration. Anyways, it's very interesting and topical. I find myself reflecting on this novel from the 1800s to my present day life. And I just have to say that that is an interesting and wholly unexpected occurrence. So I just thought that that was worth noting. 
and now that that is noted, I will move on to discuss some other things from chapter two um, that I think are kind of interesting. Um, I will say one of the most interesting things for me on this book is I, um, so I have a version. So like I say, I, I think I called them um, uh, authors before, but it's obviously Mary Shelley being the author, uh, but this is an edition that is edited. So it has editors. Um, and so the, the editors of this edition, having given um, uh, certain uh, footnotes previously, there weren't as many footnotes in this second version, but it's, it's a book that I don't know where I got from. I got it. I it's, it says used on the side. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm pretty sure I got this from the UBC bookstore. Maybe it was, maybe I was supposed to have read it as part of a school course. Well, anyway, suffice to say I did not, um, but it's a used book. So the interesting part is that there's actually, um, some annotations in here. And I think this is the only chapter in which this is, uh, like I see pencil marks, like I'm sort of skimming through the rest of the books and I can't see any other pencil marks. But the person who had this book before me or one of the people that had it before me has taken the opportunity to underline some sentences in this second chapter, which I find interesting. And particularly, um, it's in the part where uh, we've got, who is it? I think that he, um, the professor that he liked, not the one that he um, had contempt for. So the Wal Walton or Wal Walters, uh, see, I'm, I'm terrible. I just read it. Waldman. So when uh, Waldman is talking to him about chemistry and what he's finding, so that, that sentence, the labors of men of genius, however erroneously directed, scarcely ever fail in ultimately turning to the solid advantage of mankind. And what is really interesting here is that the person has put on the side. They said, AKA Hitler slash not. And I think that that's just this, this idea of, of how people manipulate science and, and, uh, and, and, uh, manipulate fact to serve their own purposes. And I find that it's such, I just, the reason I want to point it out is because it's such a, a poignant or, or, um, visceral observation in a book uh, that, again, otherwise is actually I, looking through here. I think maybe they underlined a couple like uh, things in chapter three as well. But but otherwise, the book is is pretty un, untarnished with any pencil marks. So I just find that really interesting when we're when we're here getting into the into the the higher education of Victor and the people that he's exposed to and, and who are talking to him and and talking about this perverse um, uh, use of, of science and how, and how people can, can do things quite terribly. Um, but sort of the, inter the interesting reflection on this, and I think the, um, what's, what's happening in the book, I do, I do think, and I don't know, I, this is just my immediate reflection is that perhaps he's trying to say that there were things that, that previous scientists did that other people have built upon, if for nothing else than to dispute their hypothesis, right? So, that you build upon the knowledge of, of that that comes before you, um, and it and it does benefit you in some way, and and I think that it's kind of interesting the the atrocities of human nature or the atrocities of 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 human experience over the last hundred years. We had some of the greatest advancements in the world because people were dealing with the terrors of war and how you adapt and how you acclimatize and how you how you build upon things if for no other reason but to dispute the previous. Um, injustices and to find new ways forward and, and ways to come together, which unfortunately now I circle back around to what I started with, with at this particular point in, in history that I am recording and talking about this, that we are on the precipice of, of another great turn and, and how we use science and technology to move forward as a species, I think is so important and that there, there are those who would pervert it and who would, oh man, who would, who would look to, to to manipulate it for their own means and and uh, or even through their own um, ignorance and which I think is one of the the things that 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 what Victor is talking about here is 
is such an interesting way to examine things. Like you look at at Victor saying he had the opportunity to look at all these other books, but for, for some reason or another, because of some of of some charismatic uh, person or some some lack of charisma in another way, uh, 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 hindered his regard for for the, or desire to better himself and to look for knowledge in other places. And I just think that that is such a uh, uh, an important and 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 relevant and and beautiful discovery that I am having right now in this book and that I hope that you are are perhaps seeing alongside with me if if perhaps it's not hitting you in, in quite the same way. I am perhaps a tad emotional. Um, but what a beautiful, what a beautiful chapter. Um, I do just want to say I apologize. There, there are always, I mean, again, I'm cold reading. So thank you for bearing with me as I'm pronouncing and going through as I can. Um, but one thing that I do think I, I lost a little bit of the beauty of this line. And I so I want to say it again, um, because I, uh, in, so when when camp is uh, uh, Kremp, sorry, is talking to Victor and he says here, he goes, good God, in what desert land have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you of that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient. So I think I had said deserted land and I think desert land is a, is sort of an, um, a, a more um, a, a little bit more of a beautiful uh, image than it is for deserted because desert land uh, just it has this sort of like different connotation. And I mean, I know they're similar, but I just, I did want to correct myself in, in going through that as I had uh, uh, not had time to while I was uh, just going, uh, skimming through the page. So I apologize. There might be one or two places where I'll, I'll say one or two things a little bit out, outside of the sense, but I think you're hopefully getting the overall uh, tone and feeling and, and content of the novel in the same way that I am and uh, hopefully enjoying it along with me. So once again, thank you for listening. Uh, a very interesting and um, substantial uh, first two chapters of this book and making me very excited to move forward. And I will say one of the things that I'm kind of very pleased about right now is even in my solitude, feeling like I'm connecting with someone else by being able to um, say these words aloud and share them uh, with the, with others is is kind of interesting and, and uh, makes me reflect upon uh, my, own, uh, my own circumstances. So... Thank you for listening again, and uh, I, if you want to get a hold of me or let me know what you thought of the podcast, please feel free to contact me on social media. So you can reach me on Twitter at aconkin, A-K-O-N-K-I-N. You can add an 86 to that for Instagram. If you at me on Twitter, I'll, like, I usually will read that because I don't get a lot of ads. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you can feel free to just, like, put me there. Or you can also email us. I did actually figure out what the email address is. Um, I don't know if it's really the one that we share that often. But you can, yeah, you can just, like, straight up send an email to the Thunderquack podcast at thunderquacknetwork at gmail.com. So that is the direct email address uh, for more involved comments that you might want to make about the episode or about these chapters okay anyways uh thanks again for listening and i will talk to you next time